What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Always So Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith in Marriage. This is Dr. Mario Sacasa, and grateful to have you joining me for another amazing episode of this show. Alrighty, well, have you ever wondered why people react differently to the same thing? Why is it that some folks are quick to get angry about the slightest thing, but others are more patient and meek and quiet about it? Why does your wife prefer to stay home when all you want to do is be around people to recharge? Why do all these things happen? <laughs> What's going on? Well, maybe it's because you have a different temperament from your wife or from the people that you interact with. So joining me on the show today to talk about his book, The Temperament God Gave You, is Art Bennett. And in today's show, we talk about what it means to integrate psychology with Catholicism, how his professional journey led him to write this book with his wife. And we, of course, dive deep into a conversation about the temperaments, what they are, how they're different from personality types, the four classic classifications, limitations of using them, the fact that we still need virtue, and how knowing your temperament can aid your spiritual growth. You're gonna love today's show, please. And when it is done, Leave us a comment on Facebook or on Instagram or LinkedIn at Dr. Mario Sacasa. Well, let's get into this conversation with Art Bennett. Art Bennett, welcome to the Always So podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great today, Mario. Thank you very much. It's an honor well, to be here. Oh, it's 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 sincere honor. The pleasure is is all mine. I mean, I was just telling you right before we started recording that. I first discovered the book, The um, Temperament God Gave You, probably sometime in 2007, 2008. I graduated my master's in 2006, and I went to a secular program, but was always kind of mm -hmm. integrate, desiring to figure out how to integrate my faith within my work. And I kind of had a good foundation coming out of college and grateful for the campus ministry that formed me well. And my, my wife and I, we did a couple years of missionary work in between it, oh, wow. undergraduate and then and then graduate studies. Um, so, so then... You know, kind of graduating and starting to kind of dive into like this world of of Catholic counseling, Catholic psychology. What did this look like? I discovered your book and I was like, man, this is great. This is somebody who who really kind of takes this seriously. Um, that isn't overly spiritual, um, but but doesn't disregard the science. You know, like that finally has like a good balance with it. And I really felt that, at least for me, maybe I'm wrong, but it, it was kind of one of the early. There's like this second wave that kind of happened in kind of Catholic integrated psychology, if we can say that. The first wave would be like Witz and Barr and Groeschel and kind of the, these early thinkers. But then kind of in the last 20 years, there's been this boom of like thinkers and, and clinicians in, in training locations and, um, and graduate schools and all this other stuff that's happened. And I feel like your book was kind of at the forefront of, of, of all of that. Um, what, what do you think about that, Art? In, in, well, that's, that's, that's high praise. I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't thought of it quite that way. Uh, I agree about the first wave. That's actually very interesting. I think you're right about that. And, that, and the people you mentioned, Paul Bitz being, he's a Northern Virginian here, mm -hmm. having a tremendous impact on people. Um, I see our book as more like of the self-help variety mm -hmm. as opposed to the kind of real highbrow research or stuff. I'm not a researcher, nor is my sure. wife. So, you know, we, it's just more of a practical bent. I'm licensed as a marriage therapist and also always been in management. So kind of how to motivate people to change and grow has been a big issue for me. So temperaments kind of fit with that. We never try to be too highbrow, but also we try not to, um, not to say more than we know. But uh, it's a very practical bent. Uh, I think just as it was not easy to integrate Catholicism with 
mental health. I mean, you know, Freud came out swinging. He did. I and, and I want to be more empathic to the big guy. Um, <laughs> you know, he's, trying to create, he's trying to create a science. And in, in Vienna, creating a science in the 1880s or 90s, that meant you had to really put, put religion aside. And, mm-hmm. But he did it really aggressively. So I think it probably cost us about 50 years of the opportunity to unite. Uh, but I think when John Paul II started, he was what, 129 discussions on Wednesday afternoons about sex uh, show that the church has not only caught up, but has a real important role to play, I think, in, in the integration. So anyhow, so well, even before Paul. John Paul II in Love and Responsibility, you know, in that final well, chapter, right. he's talking so, yeah, about right. sexology. So even there, you're, you're seeing this thinking happening already in the church in terms of right. kind a, of what's a what, cardinal yeah. who who's really comfortable with that. And um, yeah, so he's really, I think he was really critical to getting kind of beyond the the, the antipathy between psychology or psychiatry, especially in, in right. the Catholic Church, and now we're so we were the beneficiaries of that integration that we could write about both those things. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm surprised. You know, 16 years later, 17 years later, whatever, people still read the books. It's kind of cool. But um, yeah, I don't know. We, we we didn't have any high-minded ideals like that. We we're just trying to, to try to get something out that people had shown interest in. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. That's wonderful. Well, so like, let's just start there in terms of what is Catholic integrated mental health, you know, look for you? Like, what does that mean to you? And I, and, yeah. and I had to say, we're both LMFTs, marriage and family therapists. Yeah. And there's L- LPCs counseling, just telling the, the, the listener, it's a word soup, all right? When it comes to like mental health profession, like we're not all psychologists, but we all do study the psychological sciences. And so finding the balance in the word here. So we're going to use counseling, psychology, mental health services interchangeably. Um, much to the chagrin of my uh, counseling professors. So. <laughs> yeah, I was going to clarify that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe as LMFTs, common uh, licensed marriage family therapists, we might be more relational oriented right. as opposed to isolated individuals. Sure, so sure. It might be systemic. Uh, That's right. Absolutely. Systemic. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you know, I grew up in South. I grew up in California, where marriage therapy was very popular. So when I decided to become a clinician. Uh, that was the easiest and most available means. Uh, and I studied with some real good family therapists in uh, the Palo Alto area. Oh, really? Wow, and, that's amazing. Yeah, Weekland and Fish and the Brief th- Therapy guys. Yeah. That was just luck on my part and fortune. And, uh, was Whitaker yeah, out there uh, also at some point? Who's that? Uh, wasn't Carl Whitaker out there at some point in Palo Alto? Whitaker, no? I think, was always in Wisconsin. I don't Wisconsin. know if he traveled much, okay. but uh, he had that big book, The Crucible, yeah. Family Crucible, which yeah. is a tremendous yeah. input, in, influence. Yeah, well, anyhow, so family therapy was all over California, New York, and then other places where mm-hmm. big shots like uh, Philadelphia was another place had a lot of family therapy, and of course uh, wherever wherever Whitaker was in Madison, I think Wisconsin, mm-hmm. maybe Madison. But um, so anyhow, so I went that route, and uh, it was great. I, I went to got my degree at a Catholic school, uh, Santa Clara University Jesuit School, where I went undergrad. And uh, I was a little bit I was a little bit struck by how uh, the faith was really in the back seat. Uh, they wanted us to be good clinicians, and that made perfect sense. Mm-hmm. But I was a little surprised that there wasn't a more overt integration uh, of the uh, faith. The faith was seen more like, well, whatever faith you are, you know, you work it in as best you can. But you know, why you really be professionals? So you can see the dualism already between faith and mm-hmm. <laughs> faith and, uh, and, and and the profession. Uh, then one thing led to another, and I ended up being in a program helping uh, army kids with drug problems. And I was really interested. So my wife and I were assigned to Europe and worked with the U.S. Army there, lived there, and I worked with the kids. And then I ended up uh, being in a management position. What's interesting how the army families were all religious. I mean, every one of them, uh, not all Catholic, uh, evangelical usually, sometimes Mormon, oftentimes Catholic. 
Yet when we were helping them, we really couldn't integrate the faith. It was a government contract. There were a lot of restrictions against that. So two things. One, all the referrals came from chaplains. I go, wow, they really trust the chaplains. And B, we couldn't really bring religion in. But that's the way it goes. It's government contracting. I was new. I didn't know any, any better or whatever. And I did that for 15 years. And I really learned a lot about leadership and management. We set up programs in Europe and Asia. And uh, But over time, I felt like we weren't giving them everything we could. Religious people, religion is the center part of their life. We can't bring it up. We're trying to solve these severe problems. Mm-hmm. And that got to me. And then the other thing is I was traveling like a, like a traveling too much for, for a father of four kids. I'm a marriage therapist. I can't be gone so long. So I had a call to conscience. And, and so then we set up what's called the Alpha Omega Clinic. The Alpha Omega Clinic was an overt integration of mental health. The best of mental health were the best of the Catholic faith. We tried to be totally true to the magisterium of the Catholic faith as our bishop interpreted and then we tried to bring in the best principles of psychology. Perhaps a little naive on that. It was a big, big mar- marching orders. But then we had here in Northern Virginia, Institute for Psychological Sciences was starting up. And so you had so like did you, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Did you move from California to Virginia to start the Alpha Omega Clinics or did something else bring you to Virginia? I went from California to Germany to help with the Army. That's it. And okay. then Germany from here because they brought me here to, as a manager to kind of work with federal clients. And then over Got time. It. We relocated here. We're happy here in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And that's where we started the Alpha Omega Clinic. And it really took off mm-hmm. overall, overall. You know, we weren't really sure if we really played the Catholic thing really overtly. Really, and we played it very overtly. We, we would see anybody, but we just were clear. But we would see and counsel with the Catholic faith in mind. Right. So that's what we did. And it seemed like it worked out really well. I did that for eight years. It was a great opportunity. And uh, I really loved it. And then... Uh, then I got a call to be the president and CEO of Catholic Charities. And, but there was a lot of counseling there, a lot of mental health. Actually, I think that's why they gave me the job because I have a lot of experience managing clinicians. So, so anyhow, uh, the, the big push for me was that we were practicing with one hand tied behind our back when we couldn't talk about the faith. Right. And if I ever had a chance, I said to myself, I'll, I would love to integrate that. I got a chance. Somebody asked me if I wanted to do it. And I took it on. So... Um, that was probably the big move for me is to bring everything right to the table that you could prudently to help these families in great crisis. And over time with my faith, I saw that their faith was a tremendous asset and strength. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we were able to do. And uh, so that's really, but that's really the story for me. Uh, in terms of the temperaments, the way we way I promote let's, let's hold off on the temperaments just for a second sure. here. Sure, so, sure. no, I, I mean, I, I, I love what you're saying in terms of being able to just bring it all and put it all on the table. And, and right. I think for me, it's, it was it was similar in that you know I had my conversion in, in undergraduate, and I really kind of came into my faith when I was when I was at Florida State University as an undergraduate, um, and then working in uh, the missionary work that we did in, in rural Alabama. Also had similar experiences where I was working with kids that were difficult and just kind of felt like I just was ill-equipped. But it was yeah. more from the other side. It was like I, like I was a youth minister and I was able to bring the faith, but I didn't have the clinical knowledge yet oh, to be able to, to, yeah. to, to offer the support that they needed. And so then when I went to graduate school, I knew I wanted to be a, a marriage counselor or family therapist is what I wanted to do. Um, and so I found a program in, in North Carolina that worked for us in University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and I got a, a tremendous education there. It was really, they really trained me very well in terms of being a good clinician, but similarly felt this kind of lack of how to integrate my faith into my work. And and so that really has been kind of my 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 career objective, I guess, is trying to f- still figure that out. And And for me, it is, as you said, both kind of putting it all out there, putting it on the table, but there's... Which I think also, and this is where I think sometimes the the programs are a little they're averse to talk about faith because they feel that any conversation about faith is going to be an imposition of value set, which isn't the case because 
it can be approached from a, from a, from a conversation of cultural competency, which is of course, one of the high values in, in right. clinical education programs. And so, um, from a place of cultural competency to understand your client's worldview, to align with your client's worldview, to be able to help your client better understand their worldview. I mean, you enter into that conversation from a perspective of faith, and then it absolutely is something that could be tremendously enriching if the clients themselves are in fact Catholic and are looking for that conversation or want to feel free that they can bring up those elements of, of their lives into the counseling room. And from right there, I, I, I felt that that's, that's the right avenue with this. Um, it's really well said. I think you're absolutely right uh, about that integration. I think uh, it's interesting with the cultural competency thing. That's too interesting too. We got a lot of, not a lot, we got some non-Catholic clients would come in because they like the kind of cultural perspective on marriage and divorce. They like right. that. Right. Or um, So there's different aspects of it. And, and it's never proselytizing. I mean, Catholic Church is really clear about that. You're mm-hmm. either, you have to come in freely, yep. freely. Uh, the big difference at Alpha Omega, though, is we bring very overt mm-hmm. that we're coming, we're coming at it from a Catholic perspective. Now, we were, were kind of trying to figure that out ourselves. You know, we didn't want to be onerous. What happens if you um, give the Catholic perspective and they push back, or do you have to? Can you continue seeing them or not? These things didn't happen as often as might as, as I feared. It really, actually, happened. Most of the clients that came to us were Catholic, liked the Catholic thing. We also found a priest where we're really willing to refer. A lot of priests mm-hmm. would never refer to a secular mental health clinician because they kind of had fear where it would go. Uh, we're very uh, willing to do it. So I think there was a kind of good appetite here in Northern Virginia, at least, yeah. for that integrated model. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think there's an appetite for it everywhere, honestly, uh, because yeah. because people are looking for that for sure. And so, it, yeah, I think that, that that's that been wonderful. Um the other piece with regards to kind of integration, just to kind of say this also for me, has is, is been kind of like, how do you integrate your theories into your clinical work? And that's always been the challenge, you know, is that how do you how do you take Freud and integrate it with a Catholic anthropology, you know, like, and, right. it, and I think there's ways to do it. I think that if we look at the, the, the understanding of the person and his relationship to God, and at least kind of understanding a Catholic anthropology can serve as a foundation that then your theory builds upon. And so I know we're about to get into like temperament and personality stuff, but I really find, and I told this to all my clinicians when I was, I was a director of Catholic counseling services here in the Archdiocese of New Orleans and I had interns underneath me and I was training wow. for, for a couple of years. And, and I would tell them that like, you know, whatever theory you, you choose really kind of is emerging out of, in some ways, your own personality, like the way that you kind of make sense of the world and make sense of human behavior, you're going to naturally gravitate to those theories. So if you tend to think right. more cerebrally than cognitive behavioral is what's going to fit your bill. If you tend to think a little bit more at an emotional level, then sure, you're going to gravitate towards the emotionally focused kind of models that are out there. If you tend to think like, you know, marriage counseling, you want to look at the world from a cultural perspective and a little more systemically, you know, then, then those are the things that you're going to be operating out of. And so none of those things inherently run contrary to the Catholic faith because the Catholic faith is big enough to be able to sit, you know, fit all of these, but you have to dialogue with the theory from a Catholic perspective to be able to find its strengths and its limitations to find where, where it fits within the Catholic worldview and where, where it doesn't. But right out of the gates, there, there is a, it doesn't mean that they can't fit together. They can. And the way you do it as a, as a, as a therapist, as a clinician is ultimately it's going to be at the service of, you know, your, your, your clients or your patients that you serve. It's really well said. It's really true. Actually, I find this, I found that feature kind of surprising back in the early days of this because I didn't think there would be like a Catholic 
model mm. that everybody would have to follow. Right. But I, on the other hand, there were some things that were happening in the culture that clearly made Catholics very uncomfortable. I think the kind of radical materialism, radical behaviorism, which was very popular in the 90s. I don't think I've ever met, but I mean, I'm, you know, a lot of people haven't met. I'm not sure I've ever met a, let's say, totally B.F. Skinnerian dogmatic right. behaviorist who's practicing more Catholic faith. I'm not sure you could, but I've never met such a person. I have been surprised how many Freudians I meet, though, that are very comfortable with the Catholic thing. I don't. I'm not a. I'm not an expert on Freud. I don't. I don't pretend to be. I'm just. You just. You can't avoid him. You have ideas about him. But I'm surprised mm -hmm. how many Catholic clinicians are very comfortable being that way, and it seems to work. Uh, you know, in terms of that. So no one's crying foul or, or anything like that. So it, it's a much wider net of the experts. But I think when Catholicism at, at its best, it's very united with science. Um, I remember uh, somebody used to say he used to give talks out here. Thinks his name was. Uh, I can't remember his last name. Patrick was his first name. He was back from Princeton. He said, the church never has to fear science. It's never the big enemy. Now, sometimes science hasn't done its work yet. It's got to work itself out. You know, like right now, I think we're waiting for science to tell us, you know, how do same-sex couples impact children? We'll find out. We're waiting for science to give us more information. Uh, we've seen what science says when they when they review what how does divorce impact kids you know a generation ago everyone said no big deal relax but the science doesn't show that doesn't so i think overall there's been a harmony at least from the catholic point of view between science and um and the faith now scientism which does nudge out the faith uh, you know, people like Barron are on this all the time at least when mm -hmm. i listen to them that's a different story because that's really bullying uh, the faith out. And I suppose there are faith-based people that don't care about science. They're just, you know, they get they get insights from the Holy Spirit and they're just doing their thing. But I think the integrative model is that they both have great integrity. Mm -hmm. uh, however, it was interesting when I was starting off Omega, I think I was really trying to uh, integrate the faith into psychology. And I remember I went to, went to lunch with some guy and he goes, why are you doing that? I go, why am I integrating the faith with psychology? He goes, yeah. I mean, that seems bass backwards to me. Why aren't you doing the other way around? I go, I let me think about that. And I thought about it. I think he's right. Mm -hmm. You have to choose, pick, pick. But I never really found that much of a dilemma. I really mm -hmm. haven't. <clears throat> I mean, there are probably researchers and research studies that would be against the faith that I, I would be suspicious of. But usually if I run it by a big shot Catholic psychologist, they can find some research design falls and faults and stuff. So I'd rather, perhaps naively, Assume that there is harmony between science, uh, science, let's say uh, social sciences at least overall, and the Catholic faith. So I would, I was perhaps naively rather emboldened that you could integrate them, and the clients seemed to get better. And I couldn't get any great arguments that you shouldn't do either one. So, um, but I think at the end of the day, I mean, uh, if we cried foul, and when I oriented people. We did have a clear idea where the faith was. So, like I say to people, like, well, no matter what, you can't refer for an abortion. I mean, you can get supervision from me and others, and we'll figure out what to do, but you can't do that. Because we just wanted to be clear about the Catholic rules. Uh, you know, we have, to, we have to take some clients that can't afford to pay because, you know, to honor the poor. So, also some things like that, some, some that was kind of made up as we went along. But that, that was kind of the North Star hmm. was the faith, and that the faith would be healing for people. Mm -hmm. Overall, of course, we also found out a lot of the Catholic clients that came in were practicing their faith or really didn't care about it that much. But that's all the normal Catholic world. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, it's been exciting to see the integration and that it continues on. 
uh, has grown. Like you said, it's not just regional, it's all across the country. It seems to be a great appetite for mm -hmm. this integration, which is really yeah. exciting. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thanks, Art, for sharing all of that. It was, it was really beautiful. All right, so let's talk about the temperaments, okay? <laughs> let's, let's get into it. So you and your wife, Lorraine, wrote the book. It came out in 2005, as we said earlier. What inspired you to write it? Why, 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 write, why write about the temperaments? That's well, interesting. Uh, so I'm promoting Alpha Omega, and I have no budget for, like, there's no internet or anything. So you had to just kind of slug around and go to parishes and knock on the door and say, do you need any talks or any workshops? That was a great way to promote the clinician, the family clinician, and you know, the organization. And I had a lot of energy for that. I was younger then. And, it's happy to go all in the three dioceses, diocese of Baltimore, D.C., and Arlington. And uh, one time somebody asked me to talk about the temperaments. I go, you know, I studied those in college, but when do you need the talk? Oh, about three months. Three months. All right, so I said, I can learn anything in three months. So I was older <laughs> then and younger, and I probably did. So I studied the temperaments quite a bit, gave, gave the talk, and it was unbelievably well-received, such that like several people came up to me and said, can you give it to our parish and our parish and our parish and our parish? And I said, yes, 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 and yes. And then um, then sometimes they said, uh, I said, can I bring my wife? She can talk about the temperaments. Because as I was studying, I realized my wife and I were completely opposite temperaments. I have to say, it had a great impact on our marriage. Uh, we were so different. I mean, I'm introverted, melancholic, and I come home and I don't want to talk right away. My wife, she's talking before I even knock on the door and wanting to chat. So we had some stressors in our marriage, and we actually found the temperaments kind of helpful that way. You know, long story short, what happened is doing these talks all over the different dioceses, particularly Arlington, we had a file about this thick of, of temperament stuff, you know, different aspects of it. And then my wife goes, the cleric goes, wow, we should do something with that big fat file. Why don't we look into a book? And we've been reading the Protestant views of temperament, and we, with great respect, we liked them all over, liked them a lot, but we took, had some differences from them. And also, we, as far as we could tell, there hadn't been really a Catholic book on temperament since the 30s. Hmm. So all those things coalesced together. Uh, and uh, Sophia was nice enough to publish it. You know, Sophia's got a good brand as you know, yeah. kind of a genuine Catholic thing. So we were honored that they took our book. So that's how it happened. It was turning talks into a book. And that's actually hindsight. That's why it's a little bit lengthy and a little bit wordy. But uh, um, it's great. But it's fine. That's how it happened. And then there was a lot of requests for marriage and a lot of requests for kids. So we wrote the other two that way. Yep. That's, that's how it happened. Fine. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I love how these stories are just, you know, they're so practical. That's how it is, you know. And I think sometimes people feel that like the creative process is like this, like this divine spark that comes down and it's like, <laughs> this is what you're supposed to do. And you get this moment of epiphany. Or like, yes, Lord, I'm taking notes, you know, as I'm listening to what you're saying. And that's just not the case. You know, it's like, I think I kind of feel like I should do this. And it's like, hey, there seems to be kind of a need for it. Let's 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 kind of roll with this and see what happens. It's and then really it's well like, started. oh, well, now now that I've done this. What else can I do with what I just did? Oh, yeah. Write a book. Let's let's make it happen. You know, we're already fifty percent of the way there. Let's just kind of keep rolling and let's make it happen. <laughs> it really, that's what that captures it. But you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I was I wanted to be a philosopher. I went to graduate school in philosophy only to discover I wouldn't have been a very good one. I had this problem called logic that I had trouble with. It's kind of like being a mathematician and you have a trouble with math. So uh, I got I got out of philosophy. But I think I've always seen myself as kind of a I want to be a highbrow, really intelligent guy, but I'm, that, that as the graduate program pointed out to me, I'm really not that. I'm more of a practical guy. And really all the breakthroughs I've gotten and all the impact I've had has all been on the practical side. And, uh, and, and that's just the way it, it's kind of worked. But I have to say it's been really rewarding. It's given us an opportunity to talk with uh, thousands of families and we get mail. And Incredible. So it's been, it's been a, nice, uh, a nice kind of, uh, I guess, apostolate in its own way. Yeah. Amen. All right. So what is the temperament? Well, a temperament, first of all, it's not your 
whole personality. And, mm-hmm. and that's really important because I think there's some controversy now, particularly from a Catholic point of view. Yep. I'm not, not wanting to put anybody in a box, not wanting to say someone's determined. That's, there's not really much of a Catholic appetite for saying you are what you are, deal with it. Uh, there's always going to be a notion of freedom, and we're never just the sum of our environment. I mean, I don't think the Catholic view will ever totally accept uh, that. So anyhow, it's not, a, it's not a personality theory. It's like, like the Myers-Briggs, when they say you're on INFP or ESTJ, they'll say, that's your personality, that's the way it is. And as Dr. Jung would say, that's the way it's always going to be. So deal with it and figure it out. Uh, many, it's many. not true. My, my Myers-Briggs changed in, in the Did 15 it? years. Yeah, in between the times I took it. I took it in undergraduate, excuse me, I took it in graduate school and I was an ENFP. Oh. And then I took it just a couple years ago and I was a, and I think I was an ESTJ. I like, I like flipped like many of them. Did you? Wow. Wow. <laughs> I did. And the S. And the S. That's a big, that's yeah. a big shift. I, I was kind of uh, like middle on all of them, except for the E. The E was consistently off the charts, extrovert. Yeah. Was, there was no. Well, you know, we find that, you know, the, the temperaments, uh, Jung did base a lot of the Myers-Briggs on the temperaments, good temperaments, but way back to the Greeks. Um, but um, I, I think that in theory, usually there's, but the temperaments have this a little bit too. You don't really change that much. You change though. You change. You acquire, and in the Catholic view, you acquire virtues. That's how you change. Um, but uh, one of the things you, you, when you're testing for temperament or uh, Myers-Briggs or whatever is to not do it in the environment. Like Myers-Briggs is a very popular business setting. So when people take the test at, at work, well, you know how work is. I mean, work likes the outgoing person. They like the real assertive person. So you, you kind of to lean, you kind of still leaning that way. I mean, it's I a little biased to make your answers look the way that you want your employer to look. I'm, I'm, a, I'm in sales. Do I want to come up across as a real introverted guy? I don't think so. Or I want to be a CEO. Do I want to come across as an S? I would come around as a big N, a big visionary N. So like that, that has an impact. And I've noticed even when uh, like parish settings and stuff, when people take the um, temperaments, or every time I run into a bishop who knows anything about temperaments, I know there's a few that do. They're always choleric. And they might be, but they clearly have the, I mean, you only get the sense they, that they should be. <laughs> and that's the way they want to be. Which and, is not uh, the, re- the research supports that the, the vast majority of priests are actually uh, introverts and more in the melancholic well, side of things. So, you know, the, the funny that they'll say that all of them who talk to you are like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a choleric. You know, some of them are for sure, but that's that's not what yeah, that's yeah. not what the personality research shows with regards I, to I clergy. Yeah. <laughs> if in doubt, if you're a male, you'd rather be choleric than anything else. That's true. Oh, of course. Why wouldn't you be? Or, I mean, that's kind of the, 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 the <laughs> it's kind of what's given. <laughs> so the way you say it in the book, and I, and I love it, and we, you know, we're kind of talking about this a little bit, is is it's a predisposition to react in a certain way is 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 the clear definition you give. And and I guess the way I've kind of thought as I've as I've thought about this, and when I've taught this in in in, in classes that I've that I've taught about, you know, anyways, it, I thought of it like this. This is what I've heard: is that like the temperament is, and I think you say this in the book is it's like it's like the nature side when you talk about the nature versus nurture of the pain, right. that there's a certain disposition that you you are who you are. And so if you were born in Europe or in China or in Africa or in 1850 or in 2555, like it, it doesn't matter if on Mars or, you know, wherever else we're going to be born, you know, at some point, like it, like if you are like, there's a part of you that just is what it is. And we, whatever that is, we would say that's your temperament. But then your, and I think the, the word you guys use in the book, which I love is, is character, but like your experiences uh, round out like your experiences obviously will inter will 
will, will of course play out with your temperament. So, so you got the, the nature aspect of it, but then the nurturing aspect, the environmental questions and, and issues that arise and that together, this is what kind of forms your personality. Um, what, what do you think about that? Well, that's exactly right. It's your tendency to react to situations and tendencies. I think it's the best word. It's a little bit vague, but, the, but what's trying to cover is you can go either way. So I'll give you an example. When I started being the CEO of Catholic Charities, it was real clear, real fast that I needed to ask a lot of people for a lot of money. And I was actually very afraid of that. Even though I've been in business, the vice president, all that, I just wrote proposals, in, you know, in personal proposals, and they took them or they didn't. I didn't have to go face to face and say, could you please give me $100,000 for this or that? And I was terrified. I was terrified of it. Okay, you can look at my temperament and go, of course, you're you know, a phlegmatic melancholic. I mean, you're introverted and introverted, and you don't like to do that, and you're a little bit insecure, and da 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 However, it's real, it was real clear that I either had to learn that, or I had to quit, or they'd fire me, because this was a necessary part of the job. So it didn't happen overnight, <clears throat> but I did get to the point where I could do that. And I, could, I mean, I was always a little nervous, never felt totally confident. See, that may be a temperament feature. I never feel totally totally comfortable doing this, but I can learn the skills. I can get the support around me to, to, to help me succeed. And, and that's kind of what I did. And then most people's lives is a long series of those kind of accommodations. Now, knowing that my temperament, I, I also realized I needed to work real hard because what it was, I was learning was so against my temperament. Hmm. But, um, but anyhow, it can be done, could be done. So I think that's where what you always say uh, when, when your question is, what have I learned over the years? What have I learned over the years about the temperaments is that it doesn't put people in a box. And by yeah. the way, at least the audience I talk to, we talk to, is it tends to be a Catholic audience. They hate that. They oh. hate it. Well, so yeah, we because that. people who, who once said, I mean, like people, well, okay, so hold on. Before we get there, let, let's run through the four temperaments because I, I'm, we're assuming that everybody who's listening to us knows what oh, we're okay. talking about. So let, let's not assume that, all right? So let's let's just kind of run through the four temperaments real quick and then and then we'll get into kind of those limitations and, right. and box box thinking. Yeah. So yeah, just preface what are the four? Are why are there four? Yeah. You know? <laughs> not from the ancient Greeks. And, uh, and this is a plus minus. Because it comes from the ancient Greeks, and uh, the church took to the temperaments as a model for helping them understand primarily seminarians. Because, you know, here come the seminarians, and some of them are kind of quiet, some of them have a trouble with, why does this guy have trouble with charity? And why does this guy is so introverted and never leaves the church? And why is this guy so chatty? And uh, they found that the ancient theory of temperament, the ancient theory of temperament said it was your blood type that's been discarded. However, the connection between temperament and the body and a kind of John Paul II kind of phenomenology way still kind of lingers. But uh, why four? Because that's what the Greeks well, I don't fight. know. I just have to say with the blood type, I, I do often joke with my friends that my, my blood type actually matches my personality. There you go. Do you know why? Well, you know what it is? What is it? Be positive. Okay. <laughs> Be positive. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I, got, I got bad dad jokes all day, but that is <laughs> actually true. That is true. My, my, my blood type actually is be positive. So maybe uh, the ancient Greeks uh, were onto something. I don't I know. Think that was implicit allowing me to use that joke when I give my talks on temperament because that's a better one than I have. Um, but if you, the people that study temperament today, though, they don't use the same four c- categories of choleric, melancholic, sanguine, and, and, and uh, they use um, uh, immediate response or delayed response or immediate response of anxiety or delayed response of anxiety or easy to forgive, difficult to forgive, or easy to transition, difficult. If you read uh, Jerome Kagan at Harvard, who writes a lot about temperaments, he'll never use the four categories because he probably thinks he'll be laughed out because it's too religious. Again, want to watch out for that. Now, my wife and I, we decided to use the four categories because there's a long history in the church of using them. Uh, but the scientists will just talk about the reaction, but they talk about the tendency to react. And that's really where the action is at, the temperament. Um, 
So anyhow, so that's the that's where it comes from. Uh, the four temperaments. The one most common is choleric. Choleric is your kind of type A personality. They're interesting because the cleric usually have a lot of self-confidence, the most self-confident temperament by far, even though there may not be a connection with reality. They can be confident coaching a team. Like I saw some lady was coaching my son's uh, soccer team, and I talked to her. She goes, yeah, I've never played soccer before, and uh, just kind of admired it from afar. But they asked me to be the coach. I'm happy to do it. That's classic cleric. Mm-hmm. I've never done it, but I'm sure I'll do a great job when I do it. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, a lot of self-confidence, skilled. Also, they don't have a fear of conflict. I mean, they don't like it, but they don't They don't like stay up all night and they don't say, well, I won't do that because there's conflict. If they believe in what they're doing and whatever, they tend to be the temperament that sets goals the best. So a lot of motivational speakers are clerics because they're teaching us how to be cleric, how to set goals and go after them. Uh, on the plus side, they have a belief in mag- magnanimity. They want to change things. They don't want to leave, leave a room or an organization or uh, the same way they found it. They want to make it better. They are willing to make tough decisions, fire people, change uh, mission statements, things like that. High tolerance for conflict, great self-belief. Uh, uh, the downside for the cleric, from particularly from a Catholic point of view, is they are more, more prone to pride. And you know, C.S. Lewis says, there's only one ticket to hell. That's called pride. So watch out for pride. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, clerics have to work hard in spiritual direction, uh, marriages and other things, and, and leading their, their organizations to really listen to each other, to really be empathic. I think they're right all the time. I guess you can think that, but you want to be open to other influ- open to other influence, which is helps in marriage, helps in businesses. Those are hard qualities for the cleric because of their tendency to take charge and just do it my way or the highway. That's their temperament, and that's their temptation. But they can change because it's again, it's not a locked personality; it's just their tem- temper- temperament. Right. Next one maybe might start with would be the opposite: the phlegmatic. I'm a phlegmatic. Uh, cleric gets in the room, wants to change things or make them better or put their stamp on it. Phlegmatic walks in the room, just wants to fit in. I don't want to cause too much attention to myself. I'm just here, happy to be part of the team. If they're a leader, uh, I've been in a lot of leadership positions. It's more a kind of player's coach, so to speak, of although what do people think? What do they want? What's the mission statement? If I have to make a hard call, I'll appeal to a mission statement, not to my own ego or something. And I think uh, they blend in their, their biggest challenge. So their biggest asset is peace. And who doesn't want peaceful, cooperative, team player? But the biggest challenge for the uh, phlegmatic is uh, conflict. Uh, they are actually very intimidated by conflict. As far as I can tell, you're a therapist. Life is just <laughs> full of conflict. This comes up sure a lot of time. therapy sessions. When someone says, I'm afraid of conflict, I go, well, we got to work on that. Like, what? Yeah. Now, maybe <laughs> it's exactly. like we've, we've already got a conflict. I'm telling you, it's the biggest thing. Uh, and it's start yelling at your clients. <laughs> well, it's interesting to see the, the phlegmatic uh, learn to embrace conflict, learn to embrace conflict. And one of the great things that's happened in the last 15 or 20 years is the concept of reframing, turn from the notion of fear based running away into uh, growth based reframing. So you would, you know, it comes up right away with the phlegmatic. We got to figure out how to how to have you uh, really embrace and get excited about the growth opportunities with conflict. Um, they uh, don't like to make controversial decisions because people like it. And I remember my son, we kind of, because he's phlegmatic, he uh, brought home the high school newspaper. All my other kids were not phlegmatic, so they never brought it home. Bring this to your parents. My other kids just tossed it away. But, but the phlegmatic brought it home and gave it to us. My wife and I were reading it. Oh, look, they have student body president elections in two weeks. Why don't we sit down and talk about it? So he sat down because he's phlegmatic, and we talked about it. And it was a 16 or 17-year-old teenager, and I go, well, you know, long story short, we said, why don't you run? He ran, and he won. 
Wow. Begin to student body president. Boom, like that. Well, then what happened then? Endless conflict. You said you were going to have the ball. You're going to have the, uh, the the dance at the Hilton, but it's back at the Knights Hall. This is strange. So you said you're going to do this. You're going to do that. You said we're going to. So uh, he really grew up as a young phlegmatic man, <laughs> uh, realizing that he could overcome conflict and overcame his fear of it. So it was great. Um, so that's the issue, the challenge, really, for the phlegmatic. The um, next one maybe would be Sangman. Sangman's the most extroverted, uh, using that Myers Briggs term, which I think really fits. They're people, people. They love talking to people. Remember, I was talking to a bishop. I said, what's the hardest thing about being a bishop? He goes, you got to be on all the time, raise your eyebrows and like talking to people. And I go, are you okay with that? Because I love it, but a lot of my fellow bishops are introverted, like many priests are. They, that's what burns them out, is the constant openness to people. But I love it. And he was a sanguine, sanguine priest, sanguine bishop. And he just loved it. People are energizing, love to talk to him, love to see him. Because he was some certain politicians, they just get more and more energetic as they meet people and talk to people. Maybe perhaps like politicians, though, Sangmans can sometimes be overly impressed with the latest thing they hear, the latest idea, the latest music, the latest this, that. They might count the number of friends they have more than the quality of friends they have. Uh, the hit on the, the challenge for the sanguine, the great asset for the sanguine is they probably are good at the most important thing, which is relating to people. Great, great gift from God. The biggest challenge is that they tend to be less disciplined, and they are also, uh, if something's really hard and difficult, uh, would ha have a harder time usually kind of hanging in there. So that's the help they need of yeah. your parent. That sort of stick to itness is, yeah. uh, is what saying yeah. what's really challenged. It's the challenge for saying well, yeah. it's like shiny. Ooh, shiny. Ooh, shiny. Let's just. Exactly. <laughs> Let's just yeah. My, one of my wife puts it, it's just like butterfly. Oh, that flower is pretty. Oh, that flower is better. <laughs> uh, and, and that's kind of the way the world is. Uh, or you join clubs, but you don't go to the meetings. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's kind of doing the brass tacks, the hard work, the uh, unglorified things, the things, they tend to be more vanity oriented, which uh, from a spiritual point of view is, is, can be a red flag. Got to watch out for that. Uh, on the other hand, they're really great with people. And, you know, some part of a lot of us say, I wish there were more sanguine church leaders. That uh, And when you see them, like some of the Cardinal Dolan, you see them, these big personalities. It's very powerful. And then the final one would be melancholic. Melancholic is the most introverted, the most uh, maybe quiet, the most suspicious of new things, new ideas, where cleric and sanguine are pretty good with new ideas. Uh, that would be almost totally, all decisions are almost totally quality and almost rarely quantity. It's very right hemisphere, but not very little, little left hemisphere in that regard. On the other hand, they get wrapped up in details. Uh, whenever you see somebody reading a, you go to shop for cereal and you see somebody reading the side of the cereal box, that's probably a melancholic. And they read the policies and procedures. They write them and they read them and probably nobody else reads them. Hey everybody, this is Dr. Mario Sakas. I'm taking a quick break from my conversation with Mr. Art Bennett to talk to you about a project that I've been working on for the last couple of years. I have put together an online dating course. The course is called Dating Well, Almost Everything You Need to Know About Dating as a Catholic. This course really came out of a place in my own heart to want to be able to offer some guidance to the whole dating scene. It's not just about knowing how to get a date, but how to rethink the whole dating process and how to evaluate if the relationship that you're in is going well or not going well. So we go into the weeds of long distance relationships, dating apps, conversations to have, when to have them, how to navigate differences of personality or politics or values. Um, how to know when it's time to break up, how to know when it's time to move forward in the relationship, what it means to date friends or other. I mean, you can see we get into it all. There's 19 lessons in the Dating Well course. It will be available soon. So I'm telling you about it right now. One, just to 
get your your interest peaked a little bit, but also more than anything, just to be able to ask for your prayers for this project. We are in the post-production editing phase of it now. And so I just ask for you, please, to continue to pray for us as we put this thing together, that hopefully here in the next few weeks, next few months, we'll be able to get this out and I could talk even more about it. So thank you so much for your support. And hopefully you've been enjoying this episode with Mr. R. Bennett. So actually, I have a funny story I want to share with you about that. Yeah. I was yeah. when, I, when I was at uh, at Notre Dame Seminary before I took this job here at Willwoods. I was on the committee, one of the many committees that we had for revisioning kind of the, the student handbook, and we were kind of going through kind of certain. We, we the whole faculty was broken up into small subgroups that had like certain sections of the yeah. handbook that we were supposed to look. And so in my subgroup, it was me and five other melancholics. <laughs> it was my first real exposure of like working with a melancholic. And that's just one of them, but five of them. And man, I mean, they were, it was line by line, sentence by sentence, dot yeah. by dot, bit by bit, arguing the syntax, the grammar. And so they were in, they were in the weeds, you know, kind of making sure that everything sounded right. And every once in a while, I'd be like, can, let me just raise my hand. Hey, can, can we just, can we just breathe and like, like take a high level approach to what, like, are we even answering? We're so busy kind of making sure the grammar and the syntax is right. Are we even answering the question that we're charged to answer? Like, does this paragraph at a high level even answer the question that we're that it's supposed to answer before we dive into the grammar and making sure that the grammar is correct? And I was like, oh man, this is, this is going to be a perfect, challenge for me. That is a perfect example. Actually, Another way to look at that uh, from the new neuroscience studies is it's, it's totally left brain dominated, left mm-hmm. hemisphere dominated, and you can't get the big picture. I think when maybe, and that kind of gets to the strength, weakness of the melancholic, when they get the big picture, then all their attention to detail makes perfect sense. And they're the kind of people that keep you out of trouble and they're going to make sure the taxes are done right and that the policies are correct and we're following the rules. Yep. If, however, they don't have that right brain, again, ideally in the Catholic context, you've got the big picture. We're trying to serve Christ here. We're trying to trying to, to get people to love each other better. If you get that and then you bring, then you go to the left hemisphere with the details of the melancholic, it can fit perfectly. If, however, you don't have that big picture thing and just kind of go on, going, um, kind of from kind of a sensate point of view, trying to build up, well, good luck. So that's a real, that's a, you hit the strength weakness, I think, of the melancholics, great attention to detail, but uh, the biggest decisions usually have to go right hemisphere and have to be big picture. What's the context? How do we make sense of this? We don't have seven hours to work on that paragraph. So that's, we don't. Um, and, um, you, you ever watch Monty Python and Search for the Holy Grail? Yeah, <laughs> can yeah, I confess this on the on the podcast? Uh, <laughs> there's a, there's that one scene where like they're like going there are many tangents, but there's one where like they're just like get on with it, get on with it, you know, and like God just like get on with it. It's like that's yeah. like I kept felt feeling. I was like get on with it. Let's let's keep rolling. But you're absolutely right in the sense that I mean the beauty of this is you're talking about the four temperaments here that. Clearly, and you did a wonderful job defining for us the the strengths and the limitations of each, and that's by design. I mean, like no one person is the perfect harmony of all of these because the reality is that we are all designed to have strengths and limitations. And so our limitations are meant to be part of the process because our limitations remind us that we are not an end of ourselves. Our limitations remind us that we need other people. We need community. Ultimately, we need God to be able to make up for that which we are lacking. And so it, organizationally, we should see um, when all four of these temperaments are operating that they all have their own place 
and their own yeah. lane and their own um, opportunities to bring about great good to whatever is happening within this organization. And so, so just like with the subcommittee that I was in, I mean, I was grateful to be the only college sanguine, you know, on the committee to try, but, but they were a blessing to me also because my impatience wasn't always virtuous. My patience yeah. was, was just that. Well, I mean, patience rarely is virtuous. Let me say that, but it no. was, it was just, it was just my need to kind of keep moving on. And so like, you see this when you, when you work in groups, and this is what I love about kind of leadership studies and stuff and being able to kind of get the right people on the right bus and the right chair and the right bus and giving people the opportunities to, to shine. Because when you do that, then the system as a whole is, is, is better off for it. Yeah. I mean, I think Paul kind of covered this when he talked about the different parts of the, the mystical body of Christ. You know, there's teachers, there's apostles, mm -hmm. there's a, and I think that that's all part of the church's view is that nobody has all the skills. <clears throat> and there's good reason for that too. I mean, because of pride, pride would probably take over if I had all the right. skills. The other hand, it is interesting when you meet the saints, like whenever you want to, people often ask us, well, what do you think of the temperament of this saint or that saint? It's really hard to tell downstream. They get so holistic. And their decisions are made on prudence, not on temperament. So a temperament decision would be not getting the big picture in this group you're in, and we're just going to kind of keep going after this paragraph for, for, for six, seven hours, and then but the overall goal won't be met. So, so it's good they had you as the leader on that. Probably. No, I wasn't the leader. I was. I was. I was just. I was just well, vocal. I was just on. The, I was just on the committee. I was move like, on. Well, you move on. on. You got to move on. Got to move uh, on. And that, that balance, I think, that prudential balance between. Uh, uh, my temperament pushes me this way. The situation here pushes me that way. Like I mean, what happens almost all phlegmatic, you, you got to take a lead in the family. You got a family and you got three or four kids or five kids or even one kid, you got to lead them. And then you, you want to move up so you can afford the family. So you have to get in maybe some more leadership positions. Very hard for a phlegmatic to do that. Very, very hard. Or for the cleric to start listening to people when they really in their heart believe that they have the best ideas and best impressions. If they don't do that, if they don't make that change in growth, They'll be less effective, not only leaders, but uh, people. Yeah. So it's all set for admiring the qualities you have, respecting other people's qualities, and realizing you have to continue to get virtues to grow. So it kind of comes back down to virtue. Virtue is how you grow. Virtue is how uh, you grow. And, and, and that's the point that you were kind of hinting earlier when you said that some of the misinterpretation of this type of language or this, 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 this understanding of the temperament is that you kind of fall into a category and then you stay in that category. And like people right. do with the, with, you know, the Myers-Briggs similarly, even though Myers-Briggs is not a temperament per se, but similar people will just sure, throw these, yeah. throw these letters out and they're like, well, this is just what I am. I'm just choleric. You know, I'm just an angry person. It's who I am. You know, um, it's like, it, it's not who you are, you know, like that's no excuse for you not to grow in meekness or, you know, learning how to bite your tongue and learning how to be a little more charitable and empathetic. Like, like, yes, it's your tendency, but don't be lazy, you know, like you still, or like the sanguine, similar, you know, it's like, well, it's just, you know, it's just who I am. I'm an ideas guy, you know, and I'm just gonna, yeah. I'm just gonna yeah. keep rolling. Well, like, well, okay, sure. But you're also not having the responsibility of following through with what you say you're doing. And, and other people are kind of having to deal with your erraticness of a schedule and inability to, to show up to the meeting on time. Like that has consequences for others. And so you can't just claim to have one of these temperaments and be like, well, that's just it. You know, that's who I am. And uh, everybody else has to deal with it. Like that just doesn't, that's not at all uh, what, what we're saying. That's right. Uh, that's not good psychology. It's not good, certainly not good Catholic spirituality. Catholic spirituality is kind of hyper uh, growth oriented, uh, mm -hmm. you know, all, all the way through. And um, 
Yeah, so that's a temptation. Well, actually, it's a temptation of all of us to kind of put ourselves in a box. I'm a morning person. I'm a night person. Yeah, right. I'm a wallflower. I'm outgoing. I can't get this done. Can't get that done. I think uh, we all fall into that. It's probably original sin that we kind of box ourselves in or get boxed in. Um, and you were asking me, too, if I wrote the book today or wrote it from scratch, would some things be different? I think a couple of things. One is the neuroscience that really reinforces what you just said, that our brains are very malleable. We can change. We can change our approach thing. That doesn't happen overnight. It's organic growth. But the uh, the person who's distant can become a person who's more intimate. The person who uh, doesn't like to serve people can learn to serve people. These things can happen. And the church is always going to be in favor of that model. It's very Christ-centered. I mean, Christ just goes around asking for conversions all the time, wanting people to change. So ideally, the church is, in a, is a structured institution that's very growth and freedom-oriented. Mm-hmm. That's always a primacy and, and very impatient. And I think talking to priests in the confessional, they're impatient when someone says, no, I just got this, this sin, I just can't overcome it. Uh, they may acknowledge and, and with great empathy say, I see the struggle in it, but they're rarely going to wave the white flag and say, yeah, just, just accommodate to it. So ideally, psychology is, is providing extra help to the spiritual side of life of giving ideas, approaches to things, uh, the best science on, on change and growth uh, so that we don't get stuck in a box. Right. Uh, yeah, because it, it doesn't. It's not helpful, and and it's not like you said. It's not good science. It's not good psychology. It's not good spirituality because, uh, yeah, you know we're we're never stagnant, or we're never supposed to be stagnant in in the spiritual life. I love the way you just said that in terms of Catholicism. Actually, is like a a hyper hyper self growth. How did you say it? You're like really focused on uh and so on. Yeah, yeah. I think it's growth all the time. I mean, yeah, well, kind of think of. A- gospel passage where Christ goes, yeah, that's cool. That's Don't worry about it. I mean, well, there so, is none. I mean, like even in Revelation, when he talks about the lukewarm right. the people that he's going to spit out of his mouth, I mean, there's kind of, it, we're kind of saying the same thing where the, 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 the man who buries the talents, you know, is, is, is the one yeah. who, you know, rather right. than the ones who are investing it. I mean, here we're, we're seeing this kind of playing out in scripture, which is that like, God's like, keep going, man. Like you gotta, like you, like you gotta, you gotta keep moving forward. You gotta keep putting one step in front of the other and, and trying to, work on yourself. And, and that's something that is going to take a lifetime and sometimes even beyond that. Right. Um, because we're like, while there is always going to be this tendency towards one, one, one way, it's kind of like an alignment of the car. The car is just always right. going to pull in one direction. Like we still have to kind of do the corrective work to make sure that we're staying on the road. And so if, if the, the listener here knows that they are more of a melancholic and Hey, that's fine. Then make sure that you are um, it, surrounding yourself with people who are who have a different perspective, um, but honoring yourself. So if you are more introverted, then the point, pur- purpose of knowing that is then like, well, what do I need to do to recharge? What do I need to do? What's leisure going to look like for me? What? How do I? How do I genuinely get my my cup filled again? Um, what are the situations? And this is, of course, even we're talking about like something like strength finders or something, which isn't necessarily temperaments, but you know, yeah. there's a lot of modalities yeah. out here that you, yeah. you you know your strengths so that you put yourself in a position. The theory, of course, is that you put yourself in a, in a in a work environment where your strengths are are accentuated to 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 the best of their abilities. Um, right. So you're not always operating at your weakness, but you can't always ignore your weakness either. And this is the challenge with that. It's like you can't ignore your weakness and pretend it's not there. You got to deal with it, but still put yourself in a situation where your strength is going to be uh, m- most highly accentuated. That's really interesting. Yeah, um, there is a tem- temptation in the culture now in business. Strength finders is kind of maybe a good example. I have great respect for strength finders, but it's pretty much just pay attention to the strengths of your employees and don't worry so much. And it's almost like a, it doesn't have, it's kind of a despair that you really can't change people or people can't really grow under your watch. 
So just really get the right people with the right strengths and put them on the right side of the bus. So the driver drives the bus and that's it and that kind of But the church is never going to be totally that way. First of all, we're not that utilitarian oriented. We're not that results oriented either. We're much more process oriented. You kind of use a clinical term uh, of, of wanting to encourage growth at all times, all times. Now, the way the church stays out of threat mode, because you say to somebody, grow, 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 and you're going to go, oh, my God, you know, this is stressful. What the hell kind of boss I got now? You know, I got to do this and that and the other. Uh, obviously, the church would have to be front-loaded with mercy. And, and now that we have the grace, the grace of God, that's the, that's our optimism and our hope. It's not like I, I can be super cleric man or woman. It's um, he'll, he'll grow within me. He'll take me where he wants me to go. He will put me in situations for growth, but he'll give me the support totally. And that's where I think psychology and the spiritual side can really be an ally of not putting people in threat mode, change or else, you know, like we right. see that much in our marriage therapy, change or else, I call the lawyers and they're trying to go, well, it's just not the best motivator. Let's just try to resurrect love here. And that's the other thing too. I think psychology, I think is uniquely disqualified for really giving a great definition of love. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be a little bit on the craving side and uh, whereas I think the, the, the faith and certainly poetry and the, and the beauty of life can give, so we can we can get the we can get the goal. Say the, let's say the Christian goal is to be loving at all costs, and, and that that actually is the best way to go. I think that that's a beautiful goal, and I think psychology can be a ally, a collaborator on strategies and ideas for growth to be something other than just threat mode and, and things like that, but a real kind of flowering and enhancement. So it's interesting to see if that integration can occur in such a way that the, you can look at the whole person. It's kind of get where I started off is mm -hmm. I was frustrated by the one hand tied being man back. So now we get both hands free here. How right. do we really bring the best to bear to people? And that takes a lot of wisdom and experience. But you see, yeah, because clients, then you're you're talking about like the healing of your emotions is at the service of love. The healing of your cognitions is at the service of love. The the understanding wow. of your strengths is at the service of love. The understanding yeah. of your temperament and your personality is at the service of love. Right. Which is which That's is right. the 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 best version of I mean it's it's the the right the will and the good of the other, you know, for the sake of the other's own good. But right. it is that sense of like how do you make the best gift of yourself? And in understanding all of your personality traits and quirks and, and temperaments and gifts, at the end of the day, it's it's not understanding that. And I think this is kind of when the temptation is, well, I'm just this, is that you've you've made that almost an idol to and of itself. You've made it a finality to and of itself, rather right. than saying that this is ultimately at the service of something greater. And that something greater, of course, is God and and, and, and love love itself. Well said. That's true. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I have to say though that like so like it's beautiful to think about this in terms of a system and then thinking about like heaven as being kind of like all of us in our perfect personalities interacting with one another. Um, but there are some personality types that really rub me the wrong way. And I know that's one of my limitations. And so, man, that's going to be a hard place in heaven. You know, people who trigger me and, uh, yeah. and I'm going to be like, all right, Lord, like, I don't know how you're going to work that one out in heaven, but, right. uh, but I yeah. got, I'm going to give it all to you. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's going to pull you back into purgatory for those times. Yeah, now. probably I will. Jason <laughs> said that the growth never stops because if you're with Christ, with God, then you're going to be growing. And so it never stops. So it's an eternal part of our lives. So it's not like we just, I'm not, and again, this might be a little bit on the margins. I'm not sure all saints would agree with this, but she says that your growth never stops. So well, I mean, to some degree, it, it would make sense. Again, I'm, I'm not a philosopher, so I may l l lack the language here, but if, if, if God himself is, is reality or eternity or whatever, then there's no, f there's no period at the end of that sentence. Yeah. 
Right. That's, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah so, 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 rewarding. Like St. Jerome apparently had a great temper. He was a very difficult guy to get along with. And he really never got a whole lot better on that. I remember the homily. We just had the feast day of St. Jerome maybe a couple weeks ago. And the priest giving the homily goes, he's a really important saint for us because <laughs> he never got it totally together in an area, charity, which usually you got to check that box to become a saint. But uh, they said, but he struggled with it so much. And he did have his little victories every once in a while. And, and also, if he hadn't had that real tough mind, he probably couldn't have thrown the Bible together. So at the end of the day, one of the popes gave him the crown. And I don't think anyone's disagreed with it, but he was rough around the edges mm-hmm. and in a very critical area. And it's interesting that the church and its goodness and generosity would identify him and see him. That should give us hope. I mean, that, that should absolutely give us hope, you know, recognizing that, like, hey, if he can get there, then then, then hopefully, I, you know, I can too. That's right. Yeah. So. You know, you, you, I know you've talked about this in the book and in other qu- contexts in terms of saints who had certain temperaments. And we've been talking about this even through today. But w- what about Christ? What, what, uh, what temperament does Jesus uh, manifest? Our, our, our view, and it's part of the most frequently asked question, it shows yeah. that we speak to a lot of Catholic audiences. Uh, our view of Christ is that he didn't make decisions based on his temperament. He made decisions based on what was prudent. In other words, he didn't have to filter through his weakness because he'd had no sin. You know, sin does kind of turn the temperaments. So, for example, uh, yeah, but there's walked. an element of temperament, though, that it, I imagine temperament isn't just the product of the fall. I mean, like in terms of the the, the no, the, I don't think it is. That's right. I don't think it know, is. I, th- I, don't I don't think, think so. That. I think that there's the personality and the uniqueness of the person and the strengths and limitations of the person would have existed even even yeah. had we not. It'd be hard to identify the temperament of Mary or Christ um, because they never sinned. So. <laughs> Right. right, good point. I'm not identifying the weaknesses of temperament as sinful or immoral, even immoral. Right. But um, with Christ, I think you get the sense of here's the situation. What's the best response? And then he just gives that. So, so he might say on one day, and this is a challenge for us to figure this out, that you should give, you should turn the other cheek. Okay, so if somebody gives me trouble or whatever, I'm supposed to turn the other cheek and let him whack me. Is that the rule? And then, you know, whatever time he wakes up one morning and goes to the apostles, okay, we're going to go to the temple today. I'm going to turn over some tables. I'm going to turn over some tables. You are? Yeah. What do you do with that rope? I'm going to start beating people with this rope. I'm going to say, are you with me or not? Uh, yeah, I guess so. So what's that about? Was he in a bad mood that day? Was he in a kind mood the other day when he said turn the thing? And probably whatever, I guess in his case, whatever God the Father wanted him to do, he was radically I guess that's true of the Garden of Garden, uh, Gethsemane. He was radically available to do it. He mm-hmm. might lobby for a position, but at the end of the day, whatever the Father wants him to do, that ra- radical obedience, indifferent to his temperament, just whatever it takes to get it done. I mean, it's probably what we're all, we're all shooting for is to be whole men and whole women right. that can see the situation. My kid has this problem. My boss has this problem. I got this problem. How can I bring it to bear to help it grow? And uh, if I'm a shy guy, it's going to be I'm going to be sweating when I have to go and make a demonstrative thing. If I'm a real hard driver, I'm going to have to really be hard for me to sit to sit to my 15 year old addicted son and hear him out about why he's his life is so screwed up when I just want to lecture him to death. Hmm. These dying to ourselves, dying to ourselves to do what God wants. I think our temperaments will show where that's easier or harder. So so we so we always kind of pass on Christ that he's. I don't know, beyond the temperament. I mean, so maybe we're saying temperaments are kind of unique to people that are. Uh, well, I think not, sometimes people ask because they want, no, they, they want to know if they have Christ's temperament, which then can make them holier. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But it's I same. mean, I, I guess a Christ temperament, you would uh, let him slap you in the face when that was the best response. And then you would 
knock over every table in the hallway of that of your church and see what happens. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's no, but but I, I I appreciate what you're saying, which is that what we see in Christ is the is the, obviously the the perfect decision maker. So it this in the in the most prudent man, the wisest man. And the most yeah. integrated man at, at every level, whether it's the, obviously the hypostatic union of the total divine and the total human. But that also means the total human within itself, that there is perfect harmony integration of, 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 of who he is. Um, and so, you know, does it really matter? N- not necessarily, because, because you see him making the perfect decisions always. And so if the situation calls for turning the other cheek, that's the right decision. Right. If, if the situation calls for turning over the tables, then that's the right decision. If the decision is to, you know, walk through the crowds and, and you know, make yourself unavailable and not being able to touch, then great. If the decision is now's the time to turn myself over, then then that's the decision. And so this perfect harmony, of course, with the will of God is uh, is, is what we see with Christ. That uh, that maybe because of that perfection we can't we can't see uh, very clearly kind of where the where the uh, where 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 the personalities kind of emerge I guess or the personality differences if it's if it's just a white light obviously you you can't see the the spectrum um, because it's yeah. just what it is. And, and he was only in public ministry I guess three years but there's stories mm-hmm. of him being radically extroverted you know why does he talk to Herod I mean he talks to Pilate and then why does he just shut his mouth to Herod was he like tired or he didn't like Herod I mean I don't know there's all, of course all these responses cause us to think you know why did he not talk to Herod or why did he talk to Pilate or, or uh, that so it, 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 it his behavior causes us to search ourselves and try to figure out what's the best way to behave but I guess the comment on with Christ is it might be even most exemplified at the end there where they offer him something to drink on the cross and he goes mm-hmm. no he must have been unbelievably thirsty right but so what's, what's, what's that no mean? I, I'm just doing it the way my father wants me to do it, even though I have no comfort for me. Thank you very much. So it's it's radical. But that's the com- common denominator, I guess, is just radically obedient to the father. Now, what kind of a father is this? That all that, all that cause, all this causes us to, to really try to understand our faith and our God better and ourselves. Um, but I know. So we, we, I don't know if we're not dodging the question, but we think he's a little... I don't know if there's box. an answer. I think it's hard that's, to put that's in the box. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but, Mary's question. a different story. Uh, it never comes up, but I mean, she was also sinless. Right. Uh, uh, now, being a woman and all this, and then she had a hard road. Oh, my God. Right. And then whoever called that shot, Simeon, I guess, seven swords. And oh, yeah. Oh, well, this is, this is what you get for being the mother of God. Thank you So that's much. another thing you know, but that never comes up. Never comes up. <laughs> so, you know, you said this a little bit earlier, but is there anything else that you would add to the book now, if you if you wrote it, or what do you what else do you feel? You said you started dabbling a little bit in, in neurology. So if there's more you want to yeah. say there, or some some other stuff that you want to add, I would definitely talk. I don't think I mentioned the word reframing. If I wrote the book today and I talk about the book today, as I've done here, I, I mentioned reframing a lot. That's a great skill that helps with temperament growth, uh, mindfulness. I would also talk more about that. I would integrate that with prayer, particularly in this radical distracted era we're in now. Mindfulness becomes much more important. It was important in 2005, but it's like hyper important. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I think one thing, too, I would talk more about is trauma. I, uh, one of the things that comes up when we talk about temperament is what is the effect of trauma? We assume, we were clear about this in our later books, we're assuming that there's not a traumatic event that can allow your natural temperaments to flourish. Now, it turns out, to be quite honest, I think looking back on what we're doing, that might be assuming almost too much because uh, trauma is so, so common and so frequent now. So I would probably articulate that more, the role that trauma play. I mean, the way the tr- role that trauma plays in making it difficult for people to identify their strengths and live their strengths is one of its more serious 
right. casual casualties. Yeah, uh, profound shame. Were, profound shame. True. Yeah. You see, when you meet people who are yeah. like, I just yeah. talked to someone recently. She's a teacher. She's sacrificing. She's got a class of, I think, junior high kids. Oh my God, teaching Catholic stuff to junior high. Are you kidding me? And and doing it well. And and then she's then then you know she's in counseling. And she's telling. Oh, I'm a, I'm a horrible person. I don't have anything to contribute. I don't have anything to add. And, and of course, you go searching for the wound, and you find it, and it distorts the self-image so much, so much that these strengths are just languished, or not, or only conserve others, or not a source of of uh, her strength. And and so many people have this. So I think uh, we would probably try to pay more attention to that aspect of it as. Uh, just because in 15 years that then also just the kind of general culture now, which is much more leaning into problems than reducing the stress of our problem. That is the best way to overcome the stress of your problems is lean in, lean in, go after it. Now that can sound choleric, hyper choleric, or uh, uh, maybe a little melancholic too. Just deal with yeah, your just kind of get it done. Yep. And, uh, so I don't know what, I don't know exactly what we would have done about it, but at least if we write in the book today, those are things that would have to at least be thought through a little bit more. Uh, I think in a lot of ways there's there's bigger problems today, but also I think commensurate there's more tools today. A lot of the neuroscience right. stuff is that our brain isn't quite as locked in as it could, that it can be more malleable than we thought. I think that's wonderful as well. But um But I think even with that, of course, there's still gonna be that natural disposition, you know, that you of course can have a rewiring, of course, in you know, all the Dan Siegel mindset stuff is excellent, you know, in regards to interpersonal neurobiology. I'm a big, big believer in all of that. Um, and, and at the same time, yeah, you're, you're always going to be, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're right-handed, you're going to be right-hand dominant. I mean, you can, you can be proficient and learn how to use your left hand. And I have just actually specifically just to be able to have greater neurological pathways, you know, for greater brain health. So I brush my brush my teeth with my left hand. I try to eat with my left hand. I try to shoot hoops with the left hand and and just try to, you know, get stronger. So I'm I'm developing actually greater, you know, kind of neurological oh, okay. connections and in, in through my whole body. Um, but I'm still gonna eat with my right hand. You know, my preference is still always going to be is going to be that. And so I think it's always fine of finding that balance, you know, that there were not, um, I think that runs the risk, you know, sometimes with the neurological stuff is it, it can run the risk of being like, well, if you just do it enough, you know, you can completely rewire and it's a blank slate. Well, we're not just blank slates, but there is a lot of work we can do. And we do know that we absolutely know that all the, all the addiction research supports that. Um, yeah, know. we're really not blank slates. So that's really important. I guess the temperament is a model of that, that we're not blank slates. Um, that's really well said. I think I like the way you put that. Um, yeah, I mean, everything can be taken a little bit too far, that's yep. for sure. Yep. But I, I think um, a lot of this stuff raises some hope of making changes in areas that were, I mean, you know, 70 or 80 years ago, alcoholism was a hopeless thing. Now it's a difficult right. thing. There's a path. Right. And I think a lot of, now anxiety is just every walks in the room before the clients do and people have great fear, great fear. So some of this neuroscience stuff is helpful with that, and, and but not a placebo. I think you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, the church is usually pretty well balanced between these things. It not, the church doesn't actually be perfect. It just asks you to acknowledge that God is perfect and to try to integrate his grace in your life and try to be uh, a person that's closer to him that, that you can ever achieve being him. So it's a bit of a nuanced and difficult thing, but it's still probably the best thing, best, mo best model going for healthy uh, growth. The, and, the, the um, church's model is that we're saying yeah, <laughs> it's the best yeah. model. I think on a so. natural level, a natural level, it's got 
Well, there's something to be said about just again the the acknowledgement that 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 we're loved at a at a at a profound fundamental way, and that the whole orientation of our life is is to the whole sum of our life is to be able to achieve to be able to love in that same way, and so. Um, it is. It's difficult to believe that that at times we feel like we're alone, or that we feel that um, we have to have it all together, or pressure that's placed on us that somehow our you said earlier kind of falling into a strict utilitarian utilitarianism that has run rampant yeah. in our society, a strict materialism that's run rampant in our society. Um, that these things, at the end of the day, aren't 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 the full definers of 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 who we are as people, um, which is still the greatest gift that that Christianity gives to the world. I think you're right. The mercy of God, which comes up all the time in mass, if you look for it, is probably still the, the biggest game changer. And then we're children of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be another area to explore more. So if you're in the family of God, the mystical body of Christ, how is that like being in a normal family? And how is it better or worse than being in a normal family? Because you see so much fam- family woundedness, it's really tempting to say, well, get over to join this club, the mystical body of Christ. And and I don't say that facetiously. That's a lot of what I think happens. See everybody's your brothers and sisters in Christ and all that. And so let's just re- hit the refresh button and see how it goes. I think there's some some of that is going on. I think it, a lot of uh, the writings of the church lend to that. Certainly St. Paul, who seems to be completely indifferent, whether he's in prison or he's about to have his head handed to him or somebody else just abandoned him or whatever. And he just continues to say, talk about this joy. So what the heck is that? So he's obviously going into a deeper area of, of radical love of Christ that overcomes all this stuff. So I think all, I think the um, the whole notion of how we are a body, how we are a church, how we are a family. I know one of the things I learned at Catholic Charities, I thought that running Catholic Charities was like running a business, but I was really wrong. I had to really change that right away. It was, it was more like a family. So I was there 10 years. I didn't get that until my third or fourth year. Thank God I got it. Amen. I should have got it sooner but because uh, I was trying to fit a wrong model on it. You know, same way when I started Alpha Omega, I was thinking you have to integrate the faith with psychology. I had to flip that. And then I then it started to work. And then I had to see, well, the Catholic Church is never good. There's nothing wrong being a business, but that's not what it is. It's got business features, like just like a family-owned business, but it's a family. It's a family. So once I got that, it just made the whole job just clear and, and everything kind of not everything fit in place, but then I had a had a had a had a deal I could march towards, I think it was pretty effective. And then we all need that for our own life. I think what you've hit on the main one for our own life is I want to be a man or woman of love. I want to feel like I am loved and I want to love. And uh that's not the maybe not the easiest route, which should be the most rewarding and probably healthiest. Yeah, yeah, that's a great. But I admire what you're saying in terms of just allowing yourself to. This is the freedom, as we've been saying all the time, in terms of like we don't have to have ourselves figured out. We can let go of this perfectionism. The reality is, even if we were perfect, we would still be growing. You know, kind of leaving with this openness that that's always going to be there, which is just a, a better way of being able to approach the challenges that we face and really kind of giving ourselves cutting ourselves some slack. You know, a lot of research now supporting self-compassion and empathy. And this is the work of Bernie Brown and Kristen Neff that's just been obviously mm. just really, really popular for the right reasons because shaming ourselves, condemning ourselves is 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 not it we can consistently see is is not a good recipe for growth. So you said just a few minutes ago, you know, like your willingness to step into positions that you felt God was calling you to, even though you weren't exactly quite maybe perfect or ready for that. But being able to learn and say, okay, like, how do I adapt? How do I, how do I re-envision this? How do I, how do I see this in the right, in the, in, in the right context? And then being able to say, okay, great. 
and then and then doing that. So allowing the development of life to kind of unfold naturally um, is is uh, is probably your phlegmaticness. That's a lesson for all of us cholerics to uh, <laughs> to to embrace. Phlegmaticness, <laughs> yeah. I don't say no to this request, and uh, it works out. Right, right. Um, well, Christ does like to test. I mean, I he does like people, to test us. There's no doubt about that. Like teachers that give pop quizzes, but he talks about it all the time. You know, the stranger <laughs> and I. So he kind of, he's kind of thought of that model. And we are, but um, well, praise the uh, Lord. Yeah. Well, Art. Well, I, I, I know we're kind of running a little long here, but I do have just one final question before we kind of, kind of get into our conclusion. Like in marriage, in family life relationships, what, what's kind of some quick advice? For people who are dating or or married to somebody who is of a different temperament, um, how do you how do you how do you massage that? How do you navigate that? It's very common. It's more common that people marry a different temperament than their own. I think we are actually attracted to, to different things. I think there has to be radical respect for the person and the, and the key elements of the person, even if they're different from you. Um, I mentioned like my wife, she, she likes someone who came home and talked right away and all that. And I had to make some changes in myself, like to come home and ready to talk. But her acceptance of that of me actually made me more willing to talk because I felt so loved and respected by her. And then on the other hand, I was just so grateful to have a wife that really wanted to ask about my day and appreciate it. So we both kind of met at halfway. So I think you have to have respect for the qualities, the main qualities of your spouse, a lot of respect, even if you don't agree with them totally, even if you don't agree. And they need to be fine-tuned. If you're married 50 years, everything gets fine-tuned a lot. So I think radical respect for each other is uh, – I think, I think couples don't need to have agree on 25 things. There's just three or four or five things you need to agree on. You know, uh, I love watching NBA basketball. My wife has never sat down next to me and watched more than 30 seconds of it, and that's fine. And she has all these tons of cooking books, and I will probably never look at them. That's fine. But how we raise the kids, what is our faith like, what are our values, what's our North Star, we have to talk about that and get close to it, or at least radically, radically respectful and genuinely generous without that. So I think find the things that are the most important, come to, come to a constant dialogue and discussion about them. They might change over the years, but they tend not to. I think leading with radical respect leads to much more love. And it's got to be overt respect too. Not like, well, you know, I love you, babe, but no, you got to tell. So I think being overtly respectful and generous and also not taking everything as a plot. It's one thing I like about the temperaments. Sometimes people in their marriages are going sour. They go, oh, he's plotting against me. He's sitting up all night thinking how to make me miserable. Actually, even in even in the worst marriage cases, some, some of the worst, they do that. It's very rare. We don't really spend the time doing that. So temperaments are at least are a pause not to go to the negative sentiment override and maybe to see that there might be something healthier and better. And the third is just always in this Christ verse, God's mercy. He only seems to get upset when we don't ask. Hmm. When you don't ask and knock on the door and That's uh, right. make that a part of your life. Yeah. Wow. Well, our, I was enjoying the interview until – then you said you're an NBA fan and now you just went from here to like way up here because I'm a huge NBA fan and have been my whole life. And so there it is. Like you just got so much cooler in my eyes. So right. thanks, man. <laughs> <That's fun. laughs> nothing to do with your answer. I just fixated on, on the fact that you like NBA basketball. I was like, all right, yes. Another basketball fan. Man, we could have just done that for the whole hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Art Bennett, thanks so much for, for joining me. If people are interested in the book or the, any work that you're doing, how, how can they get their hands on it? How, anything to Amazon. plug here? Art Bennett or Lorraine Bennett on Amazon. We get six books. See if there's anything you like, and that'd be great. That would be wonderful. Yeah. So thank you very much, Mark. It's great to be a part of this great apostolate. It's, I'm honored to have been a part of it. Thanks for the work you're doing. Well, thank you. Thank you. So the final question I ask all my first-time guests is, uh, what gives you hope? Christ. That's it. Christ. Yeah. Yeah.
Good know. answer. That's all it needs well, to be. <laughs> live and kicking. He's got, got a high tolerance for pain, however, which I'm not always wild about, but uh, he gives me hope. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, Amen. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Oh, it was a delight. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you. God bless. Well, that does it, everybody. Thanks so much for hanging around for this conversation. I prayed that knowing a little bit more about your personality and your temperament can aid in your life and knowing where the places that you are strong and where the places that you have some areas of weakness that you need virtue or you need other people to make up for what you are lacking. Again, that is the point of knowing this stuff. Isn't that we're supposed to make excuses to be like, oh, well, I'm just choleric and, and I'm just going to be a blowhard or oh, I'm just phlegmatic and I'm not going to engage. No, no, no. You need to be able to find virtue and knowing where to grow in your areas of weakness and knowing how, of course, also to accentuate those areas of strength. We still need virtue to grow in the spiritual life. So I pray that this has aided you in some form or fashion. Again, when it is done, please check us out at Dr. Mario Sacasa on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Or if you want to know more about the good work we're doing at Faith and Marriage, please check us out at faithandmarriage.org. God bless everybody. Thank you.